<coughs> Thanks, Pat, and hi, everybody. My name's Don, and I'm an alcoholic. And over the years, I've been blessed in so many different ways, and I've been blessed with uh, standing behind a lot of podiums uh, for a lot of years. But I want to honestly tell you that I don't think I've ever been quite as grateful to be giving the talk as I am tonight. Um, you see, three or four weeks ago, I was diagnosed with throat cancer. And I started then with my radiation and my chemotherapy, and I wasn't able to know for absolute sure that I was going to be speaking rather than my friend Tim, who is my backup here, and my friend Brian, who is the backup to the backup. <laughs> we folks from Louisville, Kentucky, want to make sure we've got the bases covered, you know. So I didn't really, really know until today that I was going to be able to do it because I didn't know what side effects were going to be. And I want to report that, by the grace of God, I'm doing just fine today. And, uh, I also want to tell you that I've been given such a beautiful gift. This is not in me. This is just something from God and, and through you folks in these 12 steps. I'm not spending two minutes a day worrying about this deal. I'm really not. I'm perfectly able to enjoy life today, and I'm enjoying life, and I'm in just great shape, psychologically, spiritually, and emotionally. So thank you all for letting me have the opportunity to be here tonight. Because I believe, uh, actually, Pat and I and Tim and Brian were talking a little bit before the meeting. You know, the book says that practical experience has... Uh, shown that nothing, nothing will so much ensure our immunity from drink as intensive work with al other alcoholics. Nothing means nothing, folks. <laughs> nothing means prayer won't do it as well, meetings won't do it as well, sponsors won't do it as well, the steps even then won't do it as well. Nothing will so much ensure our immunity from drink as intensive work with other alcoholics. And I've also learned this, that nothing will so much ensure my peace of mind as intensive work with other alcoholics. It does that magic trick, which is very difficult and impossible for me to do on my own. It does that magic trick of letting me forget about me and for just a little while letting you be more important to me than I am. And when I can allow that to happen, the blessings flow from <coughs> from all areas. By the way, my sobriety date, um, and I'm grateful for all the things that we say here, and and, and uh, my sobriety is based on all those things, and my sobriety date's April 9th of 1981. Uh, and uh, <coughs> my, my home group is the Calm Down Group. Uh, I named it when we started it about 25 years ago. It meets on Wednesdays at 5 o'clock. By Wednesdays, I needed calming down, let me assure you. Uh, <coughs> and I have two sponsors. One of them is a fellow that you all, a lot of you will know, and that's my dear, dear friend, Hootie, uh, who has left us for Florida these days. And uh, <coughs> I'm in touch with him about every day now. He 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 had throat cancer a number of years ago when went through a similar situation. So, but anyway, all that being said, my job is to simply let God get me out of the way. We got to have some divine intervention, or this is going to be a real mess. Let me assure you. <laughs> if we leave this up to my brain, we're in a world of trouble. But we're not going to do that. I, I, I'm going to let God do what I can't do for myself, and that's get me out of the way. And I'm going to let God give me the strength to do something that does not occur in nature with me. I'm going to try to follow directions. Uh, I've got a long and sad history with the directions. They, they have never applied to me. They've never meant what they said. Uh, they are obviously targeted to idiots, uh, and, and they're all made by just buttoned down conservative square johns being advised by insurance lawyers who are worse than they are. 
And so obviously all the directions are overstated in order to uh, manipulate idiots into doing things. And this will shock some of you folks, but my case is different. Uh, it always has been. Uh, and in my special case, it's always been sort of necessary, I, I suppose, to extrapolate to figure out what the directions really mean, because they clearly don't mean what they say. And <clears throat> I assure you that if I haven't done the work I need to do today to get my divine intervention, and by the way, if you are intellectually offended about some old fool up here going on about divine intervention, I not only understand you in my old seat, uh, <clears throat> but I have found that if you are, if your sensitive intellect is so offended, substitute the phrase, the magic from the steps, and it'll get you to the same place and won't offend your intellect so terribly. But <clears throat> by whatever name, I've got a habit uh, to follow directions. If I haven't done the work I need to do today, because if I've learned anything in 34 years around here, I've learned that I don't get much divine intervention on Saturday based on what I do on Friday. It's truly a day-at-a-time thing. And if I haven't done what I need to do today, I assure you that if I see or hear some directions that say something like, do not exceed six in 24 hours, my brain will actually register that as really meaning something like, do not exceed 36 in 24 hours. So I'm going to try to follow the simple rules, the simple directions that we hear all the time, a little bit about what I was like and what happened and what I'm like now. And there's another set of directions in the book that we don't talk about nearly as much as we do the others, uh, but they're very dear to me. And that's where the book says that our personal stories <coughs> share in our own <coughs> language and from our own point of view how we've been able to form a relationship with our Creator. And guys, <coughs> on April the 8th or 9th of 1981, a loving God gave me the most wonderful gift I've ever had or that I will ever have. It was the first tiny little bit of teachability or humility I'd ever had in my life. <coughs> the first willingness to follow some suggestions about how to run my life, even though I did not understand them, I did not agree with them, I didn't think they would work, and I certainly did not want to do them. And I had never done anything voluntarily when my brain had vetoed it. And you know, I stand up here 34 years sober, and every time the words come out of my mouth, <coughs> a little fellow stands up in the back of my head and waves a sign and says, What's wrong with that? Why would a halfway intelligent person do something if they didn't understand it, didn't agree with it, didn't believe it would work, and didn't want to do it? Well, in my case, it's really simple. I've got a talking illness. My alcoholism has been running its mouth at me all of my life, and it continues to be just as articulate as it ever was. I've always had an old crazy picture show rolling in the back of my head. <coughs> and the bottom line is simply this. If I leave it up to my brain, my brain will tell me a lie that will kill me and perhaps you along with me. And the other part of my brain, my... <coughs> my disorder of my perception. You know, that's a nice, soft-sounding term, disorder of my perception. All the world that means is I don't see things right. I don't hear them right. I don't always recognize them for what they are. So the bottom line is, if I left it up to my brain, I'll believe one of those lines. I'll pick up that first drink and I'll trigger that god-awful physical allergy, that physical addiction to ethyl alcohol. And I'll die of the mad dog death that I missed by about a hair in April of 1981. <clears throat> I grew up on a tobacco farm in southwestern Kentucky. And uh, before I got sober, and I was 37 when I got sober, I know it's hard for me to believe I was ever 37, but it really was. Uh, <clears throat> and up until that time, I would have passed any lie detector test on earth when I told you the riveting Saga. It was way past a mere story about my early struggles and my subsequent rise to power. <laughs> and, of course, it was all about how by my iron will and my sterling intellect, I had pulled myself up by the bootstraps from the depths of poverty to those staggering heights I'd reached in life. 
And I believe that malarkey so sincerely, I'd have you and me both crying before I was halfway done telling it. And I wasn't sober a week until I realized, man, what a load of crap. We weren't even poor. <laughs> we weren't anywhere close to poor. We were middle-class farming people that had everything we needed and most of the things we wanted. And as far as those staggering heights I'd reached, turned out they were a great deal more staggering than they were high. Uh, <laughs> My, excuse me, my alcoholism is a mini splendid thing. I stumble across a new aspect of it every couple of days, and I think I always will. <clears throat> I think if you removed the alcoholism from Don Major, there wouldn't be much to the left but a pair of shoes. But <clears throat> one thing that it is, talking about me believing I'd reached those staggering heights and I'd grew up in the depths of poverty, is... One thing my alcoholism is, is what my high school English teacher would have called a disease of superlatives. And what that means is that without divine intervention, I won't think in terms of things like good or bad. And ordinary will never cross my mind. I'll go directly to the extremes of everything, best, worst. Fact is, drunk and sober, I've always been a whole lot more ordinary than my ego's been comfortable with. So... <coughs> Bear that in mind. Uh, what was really going on the first 12 or 13 years of my life wasn't any of that interesting and romantic crap I thought was going on. It was total obsession with self. Uh, the books says that selfishness and self-centeredness, we believe, are the root of our troubles. And <clears throat> what that's meant to me for a long, long, long time is that the first thing wrong with me is that I've got a disorder of my ego. And on account of that disorder of my ego, Without divine intervention, I am so obsessed with myself. I'm so obsessed with how I believe I stack up against other people. I'm so obsessed with how I feel that for many years I boiled the bedrock of my alcoholism where I believe my alcoholism starts. I'm not peddling it to you. But for me, my alcoholism starts with this one simple sentence. Without divine intervention, I will always wind up letting how I feel be the most important thing in the world to me. Now, without divine intervention, I can give some lip service to something being more important than how I feel. And I might be able to act for just a little while like something is. But when the chips get down, if I haven't done the work I need to do today to get my divine intervention today, when the chips get down, I'm going back to my default position. And my default position is to let how I feel be the most important thing in the world to me. Uh, <coughs> and that obsession with myself has always created so much pain and emptiness down inside me. I've never been able to stand the way I feel inside without putting something in there and or just running as hard as I could. So what was really going on, that ego disorder, it's dominated my entire life and still dominates it. Some of the things it's done are kind of amusing. It's always made me an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. And what I mean by that is I've always been, and without divine intervention, remain perfectly capable of feeling too good for something or somebody, and at the same instant knowing I'm not nearly good enough for that same thing or that same person. I've always known that I could do anything. And at the same time, I've always known that I couldn't really do anything. <clears throat> and that's been bouncing around my head for 71 years. And the bottom line is that without divine intervention, I can't be okay with me. I can't be okay with you. I can't be okay with anything on earth. If I haven't done the work I needed to do to get my help today, <clears throat> I cannot be on your level. I have no peers. I can be above you. I can be below you. And insanely, I can be both at the same time. <laughs> But I can't be just one of you and just okay with you or anything without my divine intervention. <clears throat> and so that's the mess that I brought to that first drunk when I was 12 or 13 years old. I was a totally self-obsessed kid trying to stay a half a step ahead of a screaming fit with all the emptiness and the pain that that obsession with myself created. <clears> that <throat> first night I got drunk, 12 or 13 years old. I got in a lot of trouble, and I puked, and I blacked out, and I passed out, and I woke up the next morning and had a terrible hangover. And I swore all those Baptists around the farm were right. 
and that that was the devil's brew, and I would never, ever touch that crap again. And not only was I sincere, it was fairly effective, because it was nearly a week until I got drunk the second time. And the way things were going to go for the next 25 years, that truly was a near miracle for it to be that long. And I got drunk that second time after all the, the pain and heartache that the first one caused me for precisely the same reason I got drunk the other few thousand times or several thousand times. When I got enough of that booze in me for the first time in my life, I found something that made me feel okay inside. I didn't need to run. I didn't need to try to find something else to stuff in there. I didn't need to make up tales to build myself up, although I was very capable of doing that drunk. Uh, I didn't. Re- I didn't do anything. For I finally found something that made me feel the way I needed to feel, feel so I could stand the way I felt inside. And remember, the way I feel is the most important thing in the universe to me without divine intervention. So I don't think there's any mystery whatsoever about my powerlessness over alcohol and the things like it. In fact, I think it was inevitable. I think it's no-brainer. Couldn't have been any other way. Because for the next 25 years, I didn't know that anything other than the booze and the things like it could fill up that emptiness, could do anything about that pain, could make me okay with you and with me, with everything. So the bottom line was really simple for me for 25 years. It didn't matter what it cost. And it didn't matter who it cost because the way I felt was the most important thing in the universe, and I didn't know anything else that would get me there. <clears throat> I'm not going to give you a drunk log, but I will try to let you know that I did not come here for spiritual growth because drinking gave me the hiccups. Um, well, we, all, we all have uh, different drinking stories, and part of our peculiar mental twist is that for some reason, it seems to be at least as easy for us to exaggerate how bad we were as it is, is for us to exaggerate how great we are. Uh, but, uh, but, but my honest and best memories about my drinking is that I never apologized for it, never hid it, not even from my parents at that early age. Um, never in my life have I ever one time told myself or anybody else I was just going to have a couple of drinks. I never wanted a couple of drinks. A couple of drinks never did anything to me except make, make me need something to drink really badly. Uh, <clears throat> during that 25 years, I know that I went to bed drunk at least 80% of the nights. I had no idea I was going to bed drunk that often because the only definition or standard I ever had for whether I was drunk was whether or not I blacked out. If I remembered everything, that discussion was over. I was not drunk. Now that Kentucky's got that blood alcohol limit down to 0.08, I'm sure I woke up drunk 80% of the mornings. Uh, <laughs> school was very easy for me, and uh, by the time I had finished my junior year in high school at 16 years old, I was still holding on to my world by my fingernails. It was a different world in the 1950s in Trigg County, Kentucky. <clears throat> a kid that drank the way I drank and acted the way I acted today would have his young butt in a net and in an asylum before his 14th birthday. But in Trigg County in the 50s, if you were cute enough and you were smart enough, and if you had the right last name, you could get away with murder. And I practically did. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. But <clears throat> I was in the tobacco patch the summer after my junior year of high school, 16. And on one hand, I knew that everything was going to come tumbling down quick, and I knew it was on account of my drinking. I've intellectually known that I was an alcoholic since I was probably 15 years old. So to me, the simply saying I'm an alcoholic has almost nothing to do with step one for me. Uh, <coughs> but uh, at any rate, uh, I got on a Greyhound bus by myself and went 200 miles up to the big city of Louisville from where I was. I, Kicked around for a few days, and I wound up on the doorstep of the University of Louisville. They gave me a bunch of tests and let me in as an early admission student with an academic scholarship. And my reaction to that was to stay so drunk the first semester that I just lost all concept of day and night. It was just a matter of passing out and coming to. And, of course, I blew the scholarship. 
And then for the next seven and a half years, I worked full-time, drank full-time, and somehow got through undergraduate and law school, and I haven't got a clue how that happened. When I look back on it, I don't have a handful of really clear, crisp memories. It's just a swirling gray mass of alcoholic insanity. Spring of 1968, I graduated from law school, and my precious daughter Dana, who's 47 now, was born. And Dana was my only child for over 20 years. I have a 26-year-old son now. But uh, I started practicing law in downtown Louisville that year, and I practiced for about 10 years with a pretty good little bit of success. Uh, <clears throat> that, however, is another part of at least my peculiar mental twist, and I think is pretty universal with us, is as we stay sober longer, our past gets changing on us. You know, we begin get to get a different focus on our past. And uh, if you'd talk to me in 1980. Two, I had been fabulously successful just to step off F. Lee Bailey or somebody, you know. Uh, and uh, and fa- fact is, I, I have always been a criminal defense lawyer, and I've always had a knack for getting involved in some cases from time to time that had some money and some publicity in them. <clears throat> and that's what I would stick in your face when you suggested something's wrong with the way I drank and the way I lived. And I already told you how bad it was for the years leading up to my starting practice in law. Well, it escalated. It escalated because alcoholism simply progresses and everybody that ever had it. And it escalated because I had some money to escalate it with. Uh, of course, self-employed and uh, hung out of Shango on my own at 24 years old. Nobody to answer to whatsoever. And during that 10 years, it got a lot worse. I, I began to use and did use a world of things other than the booze. Now, before you get your singleness of purpose knickers all in a knot, <coughs> let, let, let me explain to you that my story is exactly like Bill's and Dr. Bob's. All the other things were sideshows, and the booze was the big tent. Everything else was something to somehow deal with alcohol, maybe to change the effect or increase the effect or decrease the effect or help me try to function on the hangovers. But it all went back to the big ten. It all went back to the alcohol. Uh, <clears throat> February 10th of 1978, I'd been practicing law almost ten years, and I'm still holding on to that world by my fingertips. A little law firm had built up around this other guy and myself. Uh, and I drove a Corvette off the Penny Row Parkway down on the Kentucky-Tennessee line at about 120 or 30 miles an hour. Since the roads were icy, it was probably questionable judgment to be driving that fast. But <coughs> um, I did an awful lot of bad things. My body crushed both knees. I lost part of the main artery in one lower leg. They had to take a bad, to do a bypass, take a vein out of the upper leg, and graft it in to replace that. It separated my pelvis and pulled my plumbing into inside so that I didn't have a urinary function for over a year. I had a suprapubic catheter, they call it, which is just a plastic tube with a flange on it that they bore a hole in your abdomen and pop that into your bladder to carry your urine out to a bag. <clears throat> I was in the hospital for more than six months of the year following that wreck, and I had a half dozen major surgeries. <clears throat> they took me to Vanderbilt in Nashville because I was much closer to Nashville than I was Louisville at the time, and it probably took an hour and a half to get me from the scene to Vanderbilt, and my blood alcohol was still over .40, in addition to all the other things I had in my body, and I had a lot of other things in my body. <clears throat> I woke up two or three times during the emergency surgery because they were terrified to give me enough to keep me under, afraid it would kill me. <clears throat> they told me early on that I would never walk without a brace on at least one leg, and that they were very sure <coughs> that uh, we had never found a surgeon who would attempt to put my plumbing back together so that I would have a urinary function. By the grace of God, they were wrong. I've been sober 34 years, and I haven't owned a brace for over 35 years. And about a year after that wreck, the head of urology down at Duke University did put my plumbing back together and restore my urinary function. But I didn't know that was going to happen. And by the way, they didn't know who I was down there at Vanderbilt. <laughs> they didn't treat me with nearly the appropriate deference. So as soon as I was able to get out of the recovery rooms and intensive care long enough to get myself moved by ambulance against medical advice back to Louisville about seven or eight weeks, <coughs> I did. And then I laid in the Louisville hospitals for months. And after I got back, and this is 
not a fairy tale. I sponsor one of these guys in AA now. Most of them are either dead or doing life in the penitentiary, essentially, but none of them are still out there doing it. But uh, after I got back to Louisville every single day, my friends came into the hospital and brought me booze and more dope than the doctors were giving me. I'm laying there with a the prognosis that I'm never going to walk without a brace or braces and I'm never going to pee again. And I would lay there and say really intelligent things. I would say things like, you know, fellas, anybody can stop drinking when the going gets a little tough. But it takes a man to land there with it when the bills start coming in. And then I would explain to him that a man ought not be out there doing the crime if he's not prepared to do the time. So just because we'd hit a bump in the road, they weren't going to hear me whining. Give me another drink and let's go on with it. That's insanity. That's powerlessness. And when you really think about it, it is absolutely letting the way I feel in that instant be the most important thing in the universe. Letting the way I feel in that instant be more important than my daughter, more important than my profession, more important than whether I ever walked, more important than whether I ever peed, more important than whether I lived or died. Letting how I feel in that instant be the most important thing in the universe to me. I didn't go dead broke right after the wreck because that little law firm had built up around me, so some money kept coming in for a while. I had a young lady with me when I had the wreck who was not my daughter's mother, and at that time I was remarried to my daughter's mother. Um, I won't belabor this, and please feel free to ignore it. It's not in the big book, and uh, it's the only sociological observation I will make. But <clears throat> over the years I've come to believe that the fact that I was remarried to the same woman probably establishes my alcoholism without further authentication. <laughs> I, I just don't think normies do that. I think if they even considered jumping right back in a frying pan they just got out of, they'd tear the door off the, pen, off, off the asylum trying to get in to protect themselves, and we do it routinely drunk and sober. You know, Joe and Sue divorced with their date, and they'll probably get back together. And it's not bad. It works for us sometimes. It's just really different from ordinary people. But <clears throat> at any rate, um, obviously I got a brand new divorce right after the wreck. And during that period, I was married to the <clears throat> young lady who was with me when I had the wreck. She had on a seatbelt, so she was not hurt as badly as I. And <clears throat> about it, I wound up married to her during that period. And about a year after the wreck, sometime around the first year of '79. I made my first trip to the asylum, and I don't use the word asylum to be flip or cute. Bill uses it in the big book. My mommy used that word. When I was a kid, people didn't have substance abuse problems to go to treatment, and they didn't have breakdowns and go to the hospital. They went crazy and were put in asylums. And that's a whole lot more descriptive of what kept happening to me. So they got me in that first one, and by that time I still had the tube in my belly, my catheter bag, and the braces on both legs, and my crutches, and the phenomenon of craving that the doctor's opinion talks about, that god-awful physical addiction to ethyl alcohol, had reached the point where once I got any alcohol in my body, I physically could not stop. Drunk and sober, I've had 12 or 14 major surgeries altogether. I've never had one of them even get in the ballpark of hurting me nearly as much as each one of the last couple of hundred times I had to come off alcohol. Most painful, most horrible experience I've ever been through in my life. <clears throat> and once I got it in me, something had to intervene and prize me loose from it. And when it did that, it took three or four days for me to be physically able to do something like you guys are doing, to sit up in a chair. Well, in that first asylum, they got me through three or four days. They sat me up at the chair, and they had an AA meeting. They got to what I know now is step three, but to me it was some mumbo-jumbo about turning my will in life over to some mythical god-crap creature they were talking about, and you can imagine how that insulted my intelligence. So I climbed up on my crutches and straightened up my catheter bag. <coughs> and said as loud as I could, do you mean to tell me there are people in this world who believe such crap? And then I hobbled on over to the payphone. We didn't have cell phones then, and called somebody to get me away from those religious fanatics before they polluted my pristine intellect. <laughs> well, that was around the first year of 79. I didn't get sober <coughs> for another until April of, of 81, so I had another two and a half years almost to go, and I really don't remember much of that. 
Some things I do remember are that I went back to the, I don't remember, I've been able to reconstruct. Uh, I, I went back to the asylum 17 more times in two and a half years. Uh, I became openly addicted to things that brought enough social and legal pressure on my law partners to cause them to kick me out of the law firm that I had founded. Uh, and I proved that I wasn't going to make the decision at his bottom. And if you knew, guys, please don't wait for bottom to happen to you. I've seen so many people waiting for bottom to happen die. I don't believe bottom happens. I believe bottom is a decision over which we've got all the control on earth. And I proved I wasn't going to make that decision as long as I had a Tamex watch. I certainly wasn't going to do it as long as I had a law firm. Right after the guys kicked me out of the law firm, the state of Kentucky jerked my law license. My new wife had to leave me on account of my insanity, and during that period she was staying with some girlfriends and died in an accident. I last laid eyes on Dana, who was my only child, in January of 1980, and I didn't see or talk to her again <coughs> until February of 1983, over three years. Uh, <coughs> the Internal Revenue took my portion of the office building that my partner's dad built in downtown Louisville and a couple of things like that. Mortgage companies took the homes, the ex-wives were in, it was just all gone. For almost a year up until the fall of 1980, six months before I got sober in April of 81, for nearly a year up until that fall, I lived without an address with what I called on what I called the street and expired Blue Cross Blue Shield card. Now, I didn't sleep under the bridges. Uh, I could always I could always talk somebody into taking me in, and it was strangers a lot, but I could always talk somebody into taking me in. But I had no home, I had no address. Uh, <coughs> and uh, fall of 1980, I wound washed up on the doorstep of asylum number 17, which was back in Nashville, Tennessee. I kept bouncing back to Nashville, uh, <coughs> and. Uh, I stayed in that place about 30, 35 days, and it's time for me to leave, and I had no place to go, nor would get there. Had no home, had no car, had no clothes. Teeth were rotting out of my head. They told me later that they only let me in that place because they didn't think I'd live a week if they had left me on the street. Uh, and I had a roommate there who was a young guy. Of course, I was ancient. Well, I was 36 then, I guess. But uh, Matt was 21, and uh, his family, sweet folks, not really involved in AA, just good, sweet, spiritual folks. You know, we do not have a monopoly on spirituality here. I know that's surprising. Sometimes I have to remind myself that. I've got a wonderful, precious wife, Sharon. And that girl wakes up more spiritual than I can get after two hours of prayer, meditation, and intensive work with other alcoholics. And yet sometimes I have to bite my tongue to keep from saying something like, Well, honey, what do you know about spirituality? You're not even an alcoholic, for God's sake. <coughs> well, I don't want to insult you, but here's my take on it. My take on it is in 1934-1935, a loving God took pity on a bunch of spiritual retardees <laughs> and put the spirituality that people had been enjoying for millennia in a form so simple that even we could grab hold of a little corner of it and live. So these folks, these sweet, loving folks said, Don, why don't you come stay with us a few days so we can try to help you figure out what to do or where to go. I went and lived with them a year. And the first six months, I didn't stay straight, but it got better, and I had to get better. I didn't have the faculties to stay straight. When I was sober two months, I still had not regained the ability to use a knife and fork on food properly. And I was ashamed to ask anybody. <coughs> so I would practice under the table watching my friends when they were using their knife and fork. So I had to get better, and I did get better. That six months between the fall of 80 and the spring of <coughs> 81, I went to a world of AA meetings there in Nashville, most of them at the 202 Club, which a lot of you probably heard of and some of you been to. <clears throat> I got to where sometimes I could go two or three weeks without getting ripped, and that was a world record for me. And how I really know I got better <clears throat> is they only put me back in the asylum one time in that whole six-month period. And the rate I'd been going twice a year in the asylum looked like the picture of mental health. And late March of 81, I got on my most recent drunk, and it was another one of my pop-off vodka slash Listerine drunks. 
and I have honestly drunk a barrel of both those things, and this is no joke. I have better memories of the Listerine than I do of the old hot pop-off. I can stand the smell of Listerine today, but I can't stand the smell of old hot pop-off. But on that most recent drunk, I was drinking and taking everything I could get my hands on. And uh, <coughs> April 8th of 81, the last day I drank, uh, loving God started giving me that wonderful, wonderful gift. And I had no idea I was getting any gift, none at all. I'd been drunk 10 days or two weeks by that time, and nothing was any different. I still had that same insane mixture of ego and pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. One minute my brain's telling me it won't work for me because I'm so complex and I'm so intelligent and I'm so different. The very next breath is telling me it won't work for me because I'm so bad. I've just got parts of me missing that you don't know about. They've just never been there, and you don't know the things I've done. If by some miracle I were to stay sober a little while, it would just be to be blown into by a sawed-off shotgun or at best spend the rest of my life in the penitentiary. And I will tell you that from the standpoint of 34 years sober, I don't think there was much paranoia in that. I think it was pretty reasonable belief. I think a loving God poured oil on the troubles and waters of my past to keep the worst of what I've feared from coming home to roost to me. <clears throat> but at any rate, that's what was going on. And I didn't know anything was different. I stumbled back to the door of the 202 Club when I had three or four days after that most recent drink, and I didn't think they would let me in. And in today's world, they would not have let me in. I had passed out in their AA meetings and had to be bodily carried out. You know, that happens in clubhouse today. My God, you call the EMS, you call the police, you, you call your insurance company. They carried me out and threw me in the back of a pickup truck and checked my pulse after the Lord's Prayer. Uh, <clears throat> they had caught me with illegal outside issues in their men's room. They had warned the people they sponsored to stay away from me that I was a loser and I was going to die. About two months before I got sober, I was walking through the clubhouse and a big old boy, Joe Wald, has been dead for years. Joe was about 6'5". He looked down at me and said, Don, I'm beginning to think you really are too intelligent for this program. And I thought he was giving me a compliment. My knee-jerk reaction was, well, thank goodness they have finally figured out who they're dealing with here. But Joe went on. And he said, and you know, Don, that's a real shame because we have never had anybody too done for this deal. And we bury you buttholes all time. And that felt like an icy hand closing over something inside me. It was still there two months later when I stumbled back to that door. And they did let me in. I remember what was said and who said it. They said, come on in, Don, you are keeping us sober. And I said, will you tell me one more time what I need to do if I want to live? And they said, yeah, don't drink, don't take dope, go to meetings. By the grace of God, first 60 days, I went to over 150 meetings. To the best of my recollection, I did not want to go to a one of them. My brain was still assuring me that you all were religious fanatics and what I needed to do was get my head out of the sand, get my butt back to Louisville, get some money, get a law license, good-looking woman, big car, be somebody for God's sake. But I've been given that beautiful gift that I didn't know ahead of being able to turn around to my brain and say, yeah, I know, I know, but you and I have nearly killed one another. And I know this silly little program can't possibly work in our special circumstances, but we're just out of options, so we're going to go anyway. And thank my loving God. I had the same thing backwards that without divine intervention I've had backwards every day of my life to date. I make it all about what I think, feel, and believe. My ultimate reality without divine intervention is what I think, feel, and believe. And the truth is, what I think, feel, and believe is a will-o'-the-wisp. It has absolutely no substance whatsoever. It's subject to just change, subject to just fading into the ether. No substance. You know, in all of the people that I hurt and all the damage I caused myself when I was drinking, what I was thinking, feeling, believing didn't cause any of that. It was all caused by the actions that I took and actions that I failed to take. Nothing has ever gone in the record book other than what I do. And thank God my recovery is not based on what I think, feel, and believe. It is not based on how I am. For the first year or so I was sober, <clears throat> I would have sworn that the tenth step tells us 
in the book where it talks about the 10th step, that it tells us that our daily reprieve is contingent on our spiritual condition. Thank God it does not say that. Because if it said that, that would be contingent on how I am. And I have no immediate control over how I am. I can't help it. Some days I wake up and I feel separated from you and God and everybody else. And I don't want to get on my knees. I don't want to do any of that stuff. <clears throat> and I can't wave a wand and change that. But thank God what the ink on that paper says is that our daily reprieve is contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And folks, that difference is the difference between the lights being on and off in this room. Instantly, my daily reprieve went from something totally beyond my control to something totally within my control. Because I can take those actions regardless of what I'm thinking, feeling, or believing. <clears throat> but going back to, to the meetings, you see, I thought in order for them to work, <clears throat> I had to believe it would work. I thought it had to feel like it was working at the time. And I think I thought I had to be able to see the causal relationship of A causing B. Turned out, None of that had anything to do with it. All I needed to do was get my raggedy butt to meeting after meeting, let my old sick brain and soul get dragged in there, kicking and screaming behind the raggedy butt. Then they told me if I wanted to live, I was going to have to read the big book. I explained I'd read it a few times, and they said they knew that. They explained that I had been quoting it to them and criticizing the literary style <laughs> while I'd been dying. The first thing they said to me is, Don... You need to get this straight. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is not the solution to your alcoholism. And I said, what? You've been telling me for three years that it's the solution to my alcoholism. I said, no, we haven't. We know you've been hearing that because you hear everything that way. But what we've been telling you is that the action described in the big book is the solution to your alcoholism. They said, this is not a philosophy book. There's nothing here that you can learn or master that's going to somehow transport you to a state of sobriety. What this book is is a simple instruction manual for your actions. And they say, if you want to live, you'll come back to it like a little child. And you'll try to act like you've never laid eyes on it. You'll start at the front cover, going through it line for line, reading only the black part not memorizing, arguing with, or distinguishing anything, not looking for anything to learn necessarily, looking for what it says do. And if you want to live, you'll take those actions. That's when they explain the difference between the fellowship and the program to me. They explain that I can be a full-fledged member of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous on any day that I've got a half-butted desire to stop drinking. They took the word honest out decades ago. It doesn't have to be a real honest desire. Just kind of halfway want to stop drinking. I can be a full-fledged member of the fellowship. But they explain that I can be going to ten meetings a week, talking the best game you ever heard of recovery, and if I'm not somewhere in the process of doing steps one through nine the way the book says do them in order to reach a state of recovery, or having done that, I'm living every day of my life by doing the action that is steps 10, 11, and 12 to maintain my spiritual condition. If I'm not somewhere in that process, I may be a member of the fellowship, but I'm not in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm not in a program of recovery. They explained to me that the only program of Alcoholics Anonymous is numbered 1 through 12. <clears throat> and they explained to me that the steps work on alcoholism precisely the way penicillin works on an infection. They told me that if I've got an infection that will be fatal if it's not treated but will respond to penicillin, I don't need to understand the origin, width, breadth, and nature of my infection. And I don't need to aggravate my friends in the medical profession whining about that. I don't need to understand one single thing about how penicillin works in the human body. I don't need to believe that that little bottle of pills can take care of all those terrible things wrong with wonderful me. And here's the really important part. I don't need to want to take the pills. Totally beside the point. If I take the pills as directed, regardless of what the old crazy picture show is doing here, I'll get just fine, thank you. And they assure me that if I take the action that is prescribed of that big book with the steps, that it'll work on my alcoholism exactly the same way. <clears throat> I'm here to report to you that it has. 
And I've been blessed with seeing it work that way in hundreds of other lives over the years. <coughs> uh, the third thing they told me was that if one lived, I was going to have to get on my knees every morning and night and ask and thank a power greater than myself. <coughs> and tears came to my eyes, and I explained to them that the second step was what was killing me because I really had. I thought in order for me to get this thing, and I, I knew for a long, long time that the only outside chance I had of living was this. And I thought in order to get it, I had to somehow change what I thought, felt, and believed to make it more like it looked like to me you thought, felt, and believed. And I had tried by every method I knew. I had tried in genuine good faith and couldn't change a hair. So I'm explaining that to them. They said, oh, Don, you've got that backwards, too. We have never suggested you think, feel, or believe anything. <clears throat> well, I'm sure my mouth dropped open because I think that's the whole deal, you know. They said, well, no, we wouldn't do that. said, in the first place, son, you're way too sick to have any valid thoughts, feelings, or beliefs whatsoever. <clears throat> they said, in the second place, the issue of whether you live or die is going to be determined solely by what you do. What you think, feel, believe is not going to have a thing to do with it. So if you want to live, you better get down on your knees and start saying those words and ignore the old crazy picture show in your head. Having no idea why I was doing it, embarrassed even though I was by myself. Sometime in the latter part of April of 81, I started getting on my knees and asking and thanking a power that I didn't think was there to do something I didn't think could be done. <coughs> and the miracle of the second step began to happen. Bill actually talks about guys like me in the 12 and 12, not in the big book. The bottom line was simply this. If I had waited until I intellectually believed the second step, until I intellectually believed there was a power that could straighten up this humanly impossible dilemma that I'd admitted I was in in step one, <clears throat> I would have been rotting in a pauper's grave for over 34 years. When I became willing to act like a fellow would act if he did believe that, it was absolutely sufficient. And the actual belief followed the actions. Never once in my life has right action followed my thought. Every single time, right thought follows right action for me. It always must be the action. And, and that doesn't come naturally. By nature, if I don't feel like doing something, it's not in my nature to go ahead and do it. I want I want to get me fixed so I feel like doing it. All my life, I thought the difference between good people and me was they felt like doing right. And if we could just get me fixed so I felt like doing right, I could be good people too. <clears throat> I know now they may not have felt a bit more like doing right than I did. They just did right. And that made them good people. And regardless of all my great intentions and ideas and so on, I didn't, and that made me bad people. Simple as that. Nothing else has ever gone in the record book. <clears throat> well, I lived 21 months sober in Nashville. They led me through the first nine steps down there. I was unemployed, unemployable. <clears throat> when I celebrated a year sober, I was living in an attic. Still no phone, car, <clears throat> anything like that. Um, and I was happier than I'd ever been in my life. At about a year and a half sober, as a pure byproduct of steps eight and nine, my law license got put back in order. Terrified, in January 1983, I went back to Louisville because I could not get a job in a 7-Eleven in Nashville, and that's true. I was so terrified of going back to Louisville, and I don't think that was paranoia either. I think in human terms, I didn't have any business getting my face back around there. But God poured all along the troubled waters. And I, I came back and I started trying to practice law. And uh, the second month I was in town, February 83, Don Pritz, bless his heart, that was so important to so many of us, was supposed to be the Sunday morning speaker at the Kentucky State Conference there. And the conferences were bigger than then. There were about 2,000 people there. Don got snowed in out west, and they stuck me up there at 22 months sober in front of 2,000 people. And <clears throat> miracles started happening from that. People started asking me to do things in the AA, to talk here and talk there, to be their sponsor, so on and so forth. And <clears throat> that same month, I saw my daughter Dana for the first time in over three years. And two months later, on April 25th of 1983, Dana moved in with me and lived with me all through her high school years. And she and I are dear friends. We're in constant contact about this cancer deal that's going on. <clears throat> but... Uh, and my son, Keaton, oh, is he ever a, 
uh, that that was a very traumatic thing for me when Keaton's birth came about. Uh, but uh, it's turned out that he's just a, a light of my older age, and I'm so so grateful to have him in my life. But uh, at any rate, all those wonderful things start happening now. Before I paint you all this perfectly rosy picture, let me explain to you that the first nine years of my sobriety, relationships with the opposite sex and financial chaos like to kill me, like to beat me into the ground. And, and it was embarrassing because I was speaking all over the country and I was sponsoring a room full of people and I was having the relationship life of a really, really fickle 14-year-old. I mean, it's really fickle. And I, I would... So some woman that would have the least bit of problem getting a job haunting a house showed any interest in me. I would tearfully and honestly proclaim undying love. And I believe I would pass a lie detector test. And a week or ten days later, I'd wake up and think, if I don't get away from her right now, I'm going to die. Right now, i got to get out of here. Uh, you know, keep doing that overnight. It undermines one's spiritual gianthood. Uh, well, and the more money I made, the more chaotic the finances came. And the answer for that for me has been in step six and seven. I'm out of time, so I'm not going to belabor that. But it was letting go of the idea that what I think a spiritual dawn ought to be is anything other than another self-determined objection. It was uh, objective. It was letting go of the idea that I could successfully work with God's help on my character defects. It was accepting that I had to stop working on them, that I had to bring all of myself to God and say, God, I don't know who I'm supposed to be. I don't know what I'm supposed to be, but I'm going to quit trying to figure out these patterns. I've never been able to figure them out, and I'm going to try to listen to that little spark of you inside me that little spark of the divine that tells me only the next right stitch. God never sits down and discusses the pattern. Oh, Don, I didn't mean to make you uncomfortable on that. Let me explain where this is going. <laughs> Not the way the deal works. And my job is stitching. I've got about as much chance of comprehending the patterns of my life as a chimpanzee does of mastering quantum physics. I simply am not capable of doing it. My job's stitching. Well, I've been stumbling that way for 25 years now, since since I was nine years sober in May of 1990. And uh, if I had made a list of everything that I wanted in my life, in every area of my life, in May of 1990, nine years sober, and God had said, I'm sick of your whining, I'm giving it to you. Please believe me. I would have shortchanged myself in every single area of my life. My precious Sharon and I will have been married 25 years come December 26 without a single intervening divorce. <laughs> and the, the Bar Association that I so, so brought into disrepute has honored me until it's just embarrassing, really. They, they have heaped honors on me that I can't believe that they're talking about Don Major, the tongue-chewing drunk that uh, when I lost my law license, it wasn't whatever happened to Don. It was all right there on the front page. Uh, the forgiveness of non-alcoholics for us when we are willing to start trying to do the right thing passes all understanding. As far as I know, I haven't missed a morning and night getting on my knees since late April of 81. I don't know how to stay sober without doing that. It's the only way I know how to stay sober. And I want to tell you that I love you all, and I thank you so much for letting me be here tonight. God bless you all.